our chapter this week will be Daniel 11, the king of the north versus the south and and the coming of the Antichrist. You know, there are a lot of verses in this chapter, uh, most of which is prophetic history to us. To us, it's history to us, but it was prophecy to Daniel. But it covered a span of about 375 years from the time that Daniel received these visions until it got to about the end. But it even goes yet to the future as a type of the coming of the Antichrist. But, you know, as you're going to see, many of these prophecies are so detailed, they're, they're so precise, that it would be impossible for anyone... Uh, but God to know all this beforehand. Um, you know, he's going to give specific prophecies of different world rulers rising up and doing this over a period of 375 years, like I mentioned. And, and it's, you'll, you'll see what I mean by the exactness of it. You know, even the enemies of the Bible don't argue with the accuracy of these prophecies. So what they're forced to do is they're forced to try to say, oh, these were written after the events because no one could predict something so precise. It had to have happened afterwards. But um, if you do a study of the, any study of the manuscripts, um, will let you know that that's false. It's, proven, it's, proved, uh, it's been proven that the manuscripts foretelling these events are older than the events themselves. I'm not going to get into the detail of that uh, for the deeper students. Um, the Old Testament was um, um, written in Hebrew, but then it was uh, translated into Greek, uh, the Greek Septuagint, and that was dated before all of these events that we're going to read about in the Middle East. Um, but so that's, it's just because of their unbelief, they, they just, they can't believe that the Bible is true. Um, uh, other things... This chapter deals with politics. One of the things that the modern church that just preaches love, love, love doesn't like to talk about, and that's basically all this chapter is about. It's about politics. It's about the rise and fall of various political rulers who gained dominion over the city of Jerusalem and over God's people. So these were politicians, these were kings and rulers that affected the life of God's people. Um, and ultimately, it leads, this chapter uh, talks about all of this, these political affairs leading up to the coming of the Antichrist. And that's why it's so important to follow politics because we are warned not to be deceived by the Antichrist. Well, how does the Antichrist come in initially? Through politics, okay? Um, so, in fact, I'll add this to the statement. Most prophecy actually has to do with politics. In fact, um, the coming, the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ is a political thing. He's coming to take over the nations of the world, to rule them with a rod of iron and so forth. So let's just get into it. Uh, Daniel 11 verse 1 it says, Also I in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Now, most commentators believe that this verse actually belongs at the end of chapter 10. Um, so we're going to just kind of broadly go past that and get to verse 2 here. Uh, verse 2 says, And now I will show thee the truth. This is an angel, an angelic being talking to Daniel. He's going to give, the, he's going to give uh, he had already given him a bunch of prophetic information. Now he's going to give him some more. He says, and now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia 
and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against the realm of Grisha. Okay? So in other words, he's talking about the Persian Empire, and then he's talking about this future uh, Empire of Greece, the Greek Empire, um, before Greek even had risen to power. Uh, so three, the three kings in Persia were likely Cyrus the Great, currently in charge at the time of this vision or this uh, prophetic announcement by the angel. Um, Cyrus the Great, the next one would have been Cambyses, then Darius one, Darius one, and Xerxes one. A total of four kings of Persia, okay? And the fourth that would be far richer than they all would be the third one that would rise because you got the one that existed, then you have three more that brings four. Um, that would be that would be the Persian king Xerxes that I mentioned, Xerxes uh, one. So, you know, a lot of us may be thinking, man, this is all this. Like I said, it's prophetic history. What's important about this when we go through a lot of these uh, um, prophecies is we can look back now and say the Bible's true just because of this one chapter alone. Because you can't, for, I mean, you foretell that there's going to be exactly three kings that would rise after Cyrus and then a Greek king would come. Who can do that? Nobody could, except for God. Um, verse 3, And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. This mighty king we know historically to be Alexander the Great. Um, he, was a very, he was a very great military general uh, for the Greek Empire, and he conquered the whole known world in a very short amount of time. I can't remember exactly how uh, the time frame, but, but uh, military generals still study Alexander the Great today. I'm sure if you uh, went through any military academy, probably anywhere in the world, you'd be learning about Alexander the Great. Uh, verse 4, And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken, and he shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up, even for others besides those. Okay. So after the death of Alexander the Great, his kingdom was divided among four of his military generals. It wasn't passed on to his posterity, what didn't go down to his uh, family line or anything like that. The four generals took over. Um, and um, I will say this, from here on out, much of the rest of this chapter focuses on two of the four dynasties uh, that were taken over by the, that were run by these um, uh, four military generals. The rest of the chapter is going to basically focus on just two of those and their families um, because primarily the reason why it's going to focus on these two is because these two forces, it's going to be the king of the north versus the king of the south, it's basically kind of like a civil war that's going to be going on and on forever. They're going to be fighting over control of Jerusalem. And um, and ultimately, like I said, it's ultimately going to lead to the rise of the Antichrist. But throughout the, Bible, throughout the entire Bible, it's, it's kind of interesting. It seems that nations are only mentioned. Kingdoms, nations, empires. 
if they come in contact with God's people or the Holy Land. They're usually just not mentioned. So the Bible's written with that theme. It's, it's, other nations are mentioned when they come in contact with God's people or the Holy Land. Um, because, I mean, there were other empires existing around the time. There was the Chinese Empire. We don't read, there, there aren't any detailed prophecies concerning uh, the Chinese Empire. There's not anything really mentioned about ancient America and the uh, uh, Aztecs and things like that. There were other empires around the world, um, but the Bible just kind of ignores that because it's focused on the empires that would actually uh, affect the lives of God's people. In this case, it's basically what you're seeing here is basically the map of the Middle East. Okay, You're basically seeing the Middle East. And that's why a lot of prophetic commentators uh, pay attention to what's going on in the Middle East because they believe it uh, the book it plays into the book of Daniel and ultimately what happens in the Middle East leads to the appearance of the Antichrist. That's why there's so much focus on prophecy in the Middle East. Uh, a lot of it has to do with this chapter that we're reading here today. Verse 5, And the king of the south shall be strong and one of his princes, and he shall uh, be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Okay, uh, One of his princes. Historically, this was uh, a man named Seleucus, uh, one of Ptolemy's uh, princes who ascended to power and gained dominion over Syria. And from here on out, the Seleucids, or the Seleucids, I, I've heard it pronounced both ways, uh, became the kings of the north, and the Ptolemies became the kings of the south. Now remember, these are the two, it's basically what we're going to see is two family dynasties, the family of the north and the family of the south. Their ancestors from line to line are going to continually be fighting each other over control of uh, the Middle East there. And uh, so that would be the... Uh, um, I'll repeat that again. Uh, the Ptolemies versus the uh, Seleucus, Seleucids there. Um, they, and they fought for approximately, they fought each other for approximately 130 years. And the stronger of the two always had control of the Holy Land. Uh, verse 6, and in the end of years... They shall join themselves. Now, now think about this. We already, God already gave, I mean, Daniel was in Persia, right? Under Cyrus. There was three kings yet to rise in Persia. And then Alexander the Great. And now he's looking for, I mean, we're way into the future from Daniel's time with all these details. I mean, if you ever get worried and doubt that God's in control, I mean, it's, I mean, this is amazing. The detail here is amazing. No one beforehand Okay, so, and in the end of years, they shall join themselves together, the king of the north and the king of the south, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. Uh, I know reading this for the first time, I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. He, he, it just seems kind of confusing. Basically what happened was um, they tried to join themselves. They tried to join the two kingdoms, the north and the south together uh, through marriage. Um, that was, that's been done throughout history. You know, one king 
the rival kings are like, hey, let's stop fighting each other. Maybe I'll give you my daughter and marry our, you know, join our families together through marriage. And then hopefully everything will be better from then on out. They tried this here. They tried it. This was their first attempt at this, um, but it didn't last. It didn't work out. Um, the daughter of the king of the south historically was a, a woman named Berenice, and she was the daughter of Ptolemy II, the king of the south, and she married Antiochus uh, to the Seleucid king of the north. Okay, So now when, when I mention Antiochus, any of these Antiochuses, they're part of that dynasty of the north. Okay, um, So where it says, she shall not retain power. After Ptolemy II died, Antiochus II uh, divorced uh, Berenice and took his former wife, uh, uh, Laodice, uh, am I pronouncing this? Uh, Laodice back. Okay, I think there's a town actually named Leo, uh, Church it was in the town of Laodicea or whatever. Um, probably named after this this lady here. But um, so that the marriage didn't work out. Um, the guy Antiochus, the king of the north, divorced the king of the south's daughter and took his old wife back. I don't know. We don't know the details of why that happened um, necessarily, but. Um, Later on, Laodicea then um, poisoned her husband after he went back to her. I don't know, maybe she was jealous and mad because he had been married to another woman for a time. and So she poisoned her husband, Antiochus II, um, and uh, then he dies. And it says here, she shall be given up. And then it says, um, uh, with those who brought her. So after she murdered her husband, Antiochus II, uh, Laodicea had Bernice, Berenice, the, 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 new, that, the wife that replaced her for a time, and her young son and attendants killed to secure power for her son, Seleucus II, of the king of the north. Okay? So we, got, we basically have some drama going on here. And that's what you see with pagan empires. Um, it's, it's a trademark. There's all, this, all this, this lust, this lust for power, lust for... Uh, wealth, lust for, um, trying to say an appropriate word, intimate relations, um, and, 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 that's, and people murder and kill for, for all these things. And it, it happens throughout history. And we see a, a prime example of this here. Um, so continuing on to verse 7, But out of the branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army, and he shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail. Okay? So the king of the south here strikes back, okay? He strikes back because, uh, because of what had just happened here. So out of the branch of her roots, let me explain this a little bit. The brother of Berenice, uh, Ptolemy II, rose to power as the, the king of the south and attacked the king of the north to avenge the murder of his sister. So then now this family quarrel, you can see how deep it's getting. Uh, anybody ever watch a little bit of that, uh, what do you call it, um, that popular show today called Yellowstone? You kind of see a little bit of that. There's all this you know, envy and, and there's murders and cover-ups, everything for power and, and control. Everybody's doing that. So, and that's, that's really kind of what we're seeing here. Verse 8, And he shall carry captives into Egypt, their gods and their princes, with their precious vessels of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Okay? So Ptolemy III, the king of the south, 
outlived Seleucus II by four years. I mean, that's, that's history. Again, this was written way before the fact, and I'm, when I'm mentioning these guys' names, these are the names of the people who fulfilled these prophetic verses here. Verse 9, so the king of the south... Now, let me just mention this. Some would say, okay, that's cool, I know... God's really smart. He foretold these things beforehand, but this is a lot of historical details, and I'm not a history buff. Um, I believe in God anyway, so why waste my time with this stuff? Because this chapter actually lays out possibly a prophetic type. This will probably, this could likely, I don't know if in every detail, but this could likely replay, ver- this whole chapter could replay out at the end times leading up to the appearance of the Antichrist. So if you want to know how the Antichrist comes to power, this chapter could tell us many uh, events and struggles between different uh, kingdoms in the Middle East, different nations, before he comes. Verse 10, But his sons shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. And the king of the south shall be moved with choler, or with bitterness, anger, and shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north, and he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. Okay, So the multitude should be given into his hand. The king of the south wins another great battle against the king of the north, and this was fulfilled historically when Antiochus, was defeated at the Battle of uh, uh, Raphia, and Ptolemy IV uh, regained dominion over the Holy Land. Okay. Now, the King of the South, basically, just to try to paint this picture a little bit more, uh, you know, wasn't ruled from Egypt on up. You know, Egypt, King of the South, basically went all the way down to Egypt. Um, and uh, verse twelve, and when he had taken away the multitude, his heart was lifted up, and he cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. Now, now think about this. It says his heart was lifted up. The king of the south gets full of pride after this victory against the king of the north. And what does Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 say about pride? It says pride always comes before destruction. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen next. This, wor- this world ruler gets full of pride after his great victory, and now he's going to go down. And um, we'll see that here in a second. Verse 13, For the king of the north shall return, and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. Okay, The king of the north now wants revenge. Verse 14, And in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. Okay, The robbers of thy people, many people believe historically these were, this was the king of the south, the Egyptian Ptolemies. Um, they said that they uh, treated the Israelites bad. And they referred to them as the robbers of thy people. In the future, uh, many people look at these robbers of thy people as the sons of Cain, the serpent seed, or many people have heard the term Kenites, um, that they are the robbers of thy people, and that, uh, and and so on. We certainly see that. I think we certainly see that tie in as we we get closer to the last days here. 
Uh, verse 15, So the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount and take the most fenced cities, and the arms of the south shall not withstand neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. Okay, Another great battle. The king of the north comes. He's very powerful now. And remember, this king of the north and the south, it's not always the same leader. It's this dynasty, okay, family dynasty. Um, verse 16, But he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand, now check this out, and he shall stand in the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. Okay, so we'll break this up, break this up a little bit. It says, none shall stand before him. Uh, the king of the north scores a great victory over the south and gains victory, uh, uh, gains dominion over the holy land. Uh, this was fulfilled when Antiochus III, the third, defeated Ptolemy V. Okay, this verse right here, chapter or verse sixteen. Um, now, now there's something very interesting. And I think we need to pay attention to this. You know, the remnant of Judah initially welcomed Antiochus III as a liberator uh, because the 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 Judaites viewed uh, the rule of, the rule of the king of the south or the Ptolemies as very oppressive. But later on, then Antiochus turns against them. So, I mean, that's, that's something we always got always to pay attention to. Um, somebody can be on your side for a time, and it's good for you, but then it could lead to something else. Okay, so we, we always got to be paying attention to that. Uh, verse 17, he also shall set his face to enter with the... So, in other words, the, the children of Judah, when the... Uh, the king of the north won. They felt like, yeah, there was a celebration. We won, we won, we're free. But then we're going to see the king of the north then, or the, the king of the north then turns against them. Turns against the children of Judah as well. Daniel 11, verse 17. He shall set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women corrupting her, but she shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. Okay? So the king of the north here attempts to solidify the kingdom by giving his daughter in marriage to the king of the south. Okay? It's kind of a reverse of what happened before. So we're going to try another attempt at a peace agreement. Let's just get along. Let's join our families together and, and, and we can uh, consolidate our power. But it says here, she shall not stand with him. Okay? Uh, so looking into the future, you just know that for some reason this, the daughter of the, the king is just not going to be happy with this. She doesn't want to be loyal to the other, the other kingdom. Um, historically, Cleopatra, the daughter of Antiochus III, was given in marriage to uh, Ptolemy V of Egypt, but she, she did not stay loyal to him. Um, and it and caused, caused Antiochus, the king of the north's plan to fail. Okay, um, So uh, has anybody ever heard of Cleopatra? There's, this isn't the same one. There's another one that comes later. But this is, uh, this is like the first Cleopatra, I believe. Um, verse 18. After this shall he turn his face unto the isles and shall take many... Um, but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease, 
Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. Okay? The king of the north is stopped here. Verse 19, then, shall he, then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Okay? Um, I, at, while doing a bunch of research on this chapter, um, I found a good... Uh, a good uh, commentator, a, a commentator, have a good point on this. His name is David Guzik. I'm just going to read what he says about this. He says, uh, in quotes, this was fulfilled when Antiochus III turned his attention toward the areas of Asia Minor and Greece. He was helped by Hannibal, the famous general from Carthage, but a Roman general, uh, Lucius. Uh, Cornelius Scipio defeated Antiochus in Greece. Antiochus planned to humiliate Greece, but was humiliated instead. He returned to his former regions, having lost all that he gained and died shortly after. After his defeat, Antiochus III had an inglorious end. Needing money, needing money badly for his treasury, he resorted to pillaging a Babylonian temple and was killed by enraged local citizens. Okay, Now, I don't expect you guys to absorb everything that we're going over. I know it's, but what, it, what I'm hoping it'll do is it'll whet your appetite to look up some of these characters in history and then try to line them up with these verses. Because, you know, I tell you what, I've been studying the Bible for... Uh, pretty in-depth, I don't know, 25 years or something like that. And um, Daniel 11 was always like one of the hardest chapters for me. And I never had the patience to look at the historical characters. And um, and uh, anyways, it wasn't until this time going through actually teaching it. I know I'm explaining, I'm throwing a lot of stuff out. But for me personally, I finally feel like I finally got a good grasp of what this chapter means. But it takes a lot of work. I mean, I've been over this chapter a lot of times. Um, but until you actually go through and you, and you nail down the historical figures, um, it, it, it can be kind of complicated. You know, it's the king of the north, south, he stops, rises, you know, and all this stuff. But uh, So anyways, I'll do the best I can to just bring these up and, as we go through this. But actually, from here on out, it actually gets a little easier. Okay, Then, because we're going to be dealing with the Antichrist, then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. All right, the raiser of taxes. Historically, this was Seleucus III, the eldest son of Antiochus III, who uh, sought to tax his kingdom along with the Holy Land to increase revenues. Um, it, it, it said that he also planned to pillage the temple in Jerusalem, but, but check this out, but was warned by an ambassador who had an angelic vision uh, not to do that. I, I, now, I personally believe that God at times has stepped in to uh, warn pagan kings to do or not to do certain things. Um, and uh, we, we've, there are many cases of it throughout history. Well, the uh, king of Babylon had uh, Nebuchadnezzar. God gave him visions and so forth. There were visions uh, Pilate. Pilate's wife was told not to have anything to do with the murder of Jesus, that it was innocent blood. Um, so whatever the case, God st stepped in here. This guy was planning on plundering the temple, and he was warned by an angel not to do it. Okay, so it says, but within a few days he shall be destroyed. 
Seleucus III was assassinated. Uh, many people believe it was by his brother Antiochus IV. Okay. All right, verse 21. Now from here on out, we definitely have a type of the rise of the Antichrist. First, this guy comes on the scene. He raises taxes, and then he gets killed. Um, and then this other guy comes up, and, he, and he's going to be known as the vile person, this despicable person. Well, we know there could be no more despicable leader ever in, in the course of history uh, other than the Antichrist himself. He is the ultimate vile or despicable person. So it says, in his estate, after that guy gets killed, shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in, now check this out, peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Okay? Um, so this, now I, I will mention this, uh, this vile person. There was a historical fulfillment of the vile person. And uh, he, uh, obviously, we... It, uh, he was a disgusting man, and uh, his name was Antiochus IV, otherwise known as, some of you guys might know this name or might have heard it before, Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? Epiphanes means illustrious. He thought he was illustrious, uh, but obviously he was the vile man. But um, uh, others made a play on his name and called him Epimanes, meaning the madman. Okay? He called himself the illustrious, but other, most people called him the madman. Um, and uh, he, he did just that. He, uh, after murdering his brother, he then used flattery and slick promises to gain power. And um, he is said to have even flattered the king of uh, Pergamos, the Romans, and the Syrians. So in other words, this, this political leader gained power by flattering all these different world rulers. And uh, first he murdered his brother, but then he goes and he flatters and says a promising peace and all, and all this stuff. Um, all right, but again, I'm going to mention this. The Antichrist, being the ultimate vile person, will pro likely come in, just like this, this guy, with flattery and deception. Verse 22, And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him, and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. Verse 23, And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. Okay? So the vile person makes a deceitful covenant with the king of the south that he never intended to keep. Okay? Um... That is the mark of the, the Antichrist. He'll come on the scene making promises, making agreements, and he has, never has one intention of keeping any of those. Verse 24, he shall enter peaceably. You know, he's going to probably tell his people to put up banners of love everywhere. Love and rainbows, right? Love and rainbows. He shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest places of the province. He shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. Now remember, all this, this lineage of the kings of the north versus the south. He's, this guy is going to do something that none of his ancestors ever did. Nobody in his dynasty ever did uh, the things that he's going to do. He shall scatter among them the prey, the spoil, the riches, yea, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds, even for a time. So he's got a cunning strategy of peace and deception that he's going to use. Verse 25, 
And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Okay? So this vile person historically, the historical type of the Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, was defeated by Egypt with the help of Rome. And this is kind of where Rome comes into the picture. You went from Persia to Greece, now Rome, okay? Um, the, the, these empires that controlled the Middle East. So eventually Antiochus' kingdom uh, would, uh, would actually come under the uh, dominion of Rome after the vile person stands up. Verse 26, Yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and shall fall down, and many shall fall down slain. So eventually his own most loyal, this vile person, eventually his, his own most loyal and trusted servants turn on him. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, uh, attack him. Now, this is, you know, when you live a life, now, now think about this. When you live a life of greed, of corruption, of murder, and everything you're doing is trying to advance yourself, you live a life, I, I don't know why anybody would want to live like that, because they always are looking behind their back. Somebody else more ambitious than them is going to want to take them out at some point, and it's going to be a never-ending life of turmoil. And that's what it's like with uh, you know, the kingdoms of this world. There's always somebody vying for power. And we see that displayed in this chapter. Um, somebody else is going to take you out if you come in corruptly and take them out. It's just, it's just what comes around goes around. That's what happens. Uh, verse 27, And both of these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief. Okay? Both these kings are corrupt. They're both liars, the king of the north and the king of the south. And they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Okay? You know, it kind of sounds a lot like the Middle East today. I know uh, there's a lot, you know, negotiations with the Israelis and the Palestinians, you know. They're always lying to each other at the table and there's never peace. There's always they're always fighting over now the why I mention them is because they are the two powers right now that are that control the temple, the, the holy city of Jerusalem. The Palestinians and the modern day Israelis. Okay. Uh, and they and they seem to be doing a lot like uh, seem to have this uh, a very similar back and forth confrontation since 1948 as we see here in Daniel chapter 11. King of the north versus the south. Um, verse 28, Then shall he return unto his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. Okay, So this vile person, he sets his heart against God's people. That's what it means when it says he's against the holy covenant. Um, and historically, it was said that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes um, tried to force the uh, remnant of Judah to conform to pagan Greek culture. Now, how does that apply to today? Think about how we're being forced to now being forced to conform to pagan culture more and more every day. Verse 29 at the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. For the ships of Chittim 
shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Okay? These ships of Chittim uh, were thought to be uh, Roman naval ships that, that eventually attacked uh, this uh, vile person here, Antiochus Epiphanes. But, but look at this. He's going to have intelligence. This vile person is going to have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. Look at how many churches... You wonder why churches are compromising today? It's because of... Uh, you know, these, these uh, apostates or these leaders of these uh, great denominations and leaders of these churches, they make deals with corrupt leaders, just like they did back here. They made these uh, people that were supposed to be God's people, they turned against God to make uh, deals with this vile person, okay? Corruption. Verse 31, an arm shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away, now check this out, and shall take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Okay, the vile person, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, historically he set up an image of Zeus in the temple and actually sacrificed a pig on the altar. But many of you might recognize this phrase. This was before Jesus' time, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. But Jesus still looked at this verse here as being still yet future because he said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, get out of Jerusalem. Don't, don't, don't go there. Now, I believe that's in the future, God is refer or Jesus was referring to the when you see the appearance of the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God, like Second Thessalonians chapter two talks about. Um, that that's what these verses refer to from here on out. Even though they had a there's a lot of debate over this. You know, some people look at prophecies like this that were fulfilled at least in part historically, and they say, no, no, it's all history, it's all done away with. But the Bible is always written in, in a way that God gives us uh, historical types that tell us what's going to happen in the future. In other words, it's like teaching your kids the ABCs. Look at what happened in history, and you'll know what will happen in the future. Um, he tries to make it easy for us. I know this chapter doesn't seem easy, and you know what, a lot of commentators, I make you guys suffer through it, but a lot of commentators just skip half of this chapter because they don't want to go into the King of the North versus the South squabbles. But I'm a big believer in not ever skipping verses. I want to at least read them and explain them. So uh, that's just what you get. Sorry. <laughs> I'll even, if I was going through the book of Leviticus, I'd read through every single verse in the book of Leviticus, the numbers. Okay? I think it's important. I just don't believe in skipping. Um, some chapters are very easy to follow in the Bible, and some chapters are a little long, but they're all important. We don't want to just cherry pick and, and say, hey, that's, that's too much for me. But verse 32, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Okay, So many people would become traitors. Many people that would become apostates. Now today, like I said, many Christians today have already apostatized. They support Black Lives Matter. They support the leftist agenda. They've already departed from the faith, but those that are remaining, God says, will be strong and do exploits. 
That means they're going to be strengthened in their faith. And in the future, we're actually going to do great things and, and achieve great victories over the enemy. Uh, those times are coming. So there's a great division. You know, the people that are corrupted by flat. How many people can be corrupted by flatteries? Oh, you're the best guy. You're the best preacher. You're so nice. Why don't you just soften that a little bit and focus more on this? You know, and that's how that works. People get flattered. Um, I even get attempts by people. Now, I'm pretty low on the totem pole here. I'm not trying to put myself up. But some people will send me a flattering message. Oh, you're so great. I like what you're saying here. But, um, but you should really look at this. I mean, I think you're a little bit wrong here. And it's something that would take me totally off the path. You know, but some people would be like, oh, he's flattering me. I like it. I like it. Normally, when I get flattery from any angle, sometimes it's legitimate. You have somebody that really appreciates what you're doing and things like that. But most of the time, right, when somebody says something really great about you, I'm always like, okay, where's the catch? Where's the catch? What, a, what am I not doing that you want me to do? <laughs> um, and Satan oftentimes works that way. He makes you feel really good about yourself and then says, but, but I want you to do this. Verse 33, And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall, now check this out. So it says, they that understand, it's, it's all these people that are studying their Bibles, right? Groups like ours. It says that in the future, we're going to be instructing many people. They're going to, a lot of people are going to want, uh, want to know what is going on in the world. But it says, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame and by captivity and by spoil many days. Who's, who are these people that are going to fall by the sword and by flame and by captivity and spoil many days? These are God's people. These are the good people, right? Uh, we, we don't, five years ago, if I said this, this could happen in our lifetime, people would say, no, never in America. Now when you see the mobs raging, now you could say, yeah, they would burn somebody in the street. Yeah, they would kill somebody with the sword. In fact, it just happened. Some guy wearing a patriot, and this is on a very small level, but one guy was wearing a, a, a patriot prayer hat. He got killed just because he was a patriot who prayed. You know, think about that. Um, and this is only the beginning of what I feel is going to be much worse. Um, now I'm going to mention historically, the vile person, Antiochus Epiphanes, killed 80,000 of Judah and took another 80,000 for prisoners and slaves and plundered the temple of equivalently one, of, of equivalent to our money about $1 billion, okay? Um, that's what says they understand and, and he, would, he would do this. He would take them into captivity and take these people as slaves, kill them and take the rest of them as slaves and steal everything they have. Verse 34, And when they shall fall, they now think about this for a minute. Um, you know, all these things that we're being forced to conform to, you got to be, if you don't support Black Lives Matter, you can get fired from your job now in many cases. Um, if you, um, you know, don't go along with wearing a mask, you can't go into many stores. Um, and so there's a way that, the, that Satan can try to slowly bankrupt and push Christians out of society. Uh, to, you know, it, it's done in such a way that you just say, it tires you out. You're just like, okay, I'm just giving a little bit here, just giving a little bit there. And then all of a sudden, you know, he, that's his long game. He wants to tire us out. Um, verse 34, Now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping 
with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. Okay, so when God's people start falling, we're under this persecution, um, God's going to give us some help, give us some strength, but at the same time, many people are going to come to us with flatteries. You know, they're going to probably tell us, hey man, just join this, this new society. This is, we're full of love. I mean, and all these things, you know, and, and uh, so ultimately they want to convert us. And one of the methods is through flattery. Verse 35, and some of them, now check this out. This is a warning to us. And some of them of understanding shall fall. Now, now think about this. Just as God foretold of all these these rulers fighting each other for control of the Middle of the East, uh, uh, of fighting for control over the Middle East in detail. And I know it can be long, and, and some might even think it to be boring, but it sets a stage for what's next. If God was that precise with all these leaders and these uh, attempted um, joining of the kingdoms through marriage and things like that, if he was that exact, you know, that precise with the details, certainly this verse here that we're reading about in the future is going to happen exactly as it's written. And it's not a joke. It's not Christianity's not a, you know, a, a club that we join to feel good. I mean, this is a real uh, battle that we are in. It says, some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for a time appointed. In other words, we are going to go through a severe test, okay, a severe trial. And some people will fall. Some people will will uh, waver. Some people will get in a period of doubt for a time, but it sounds like um, uh, they, they, will go, uh, they might go through a little bit of a period of doubt or you know, wanting to conform, but then come back, but it'll be a trial. Verse 36, and the king, this will be the future Antichrist. Um, in fact, none of, this, none of these verses from here on out can be, it can't be said that it has been fulfilled by some historical leader, okay, in detail. So we basically, God runs us through this, all this type of this struggle for power over Jerusalem. So what we're seeing today between the Israelis and the Palestinians leading up to the uh, appearance of the Antichrist. And here's what happens. And the king shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Now think about that. That's again. That's the, what God was. This whole chapter was all these things that God had predetermined would be done, leading up to this, the appearance of the Antichrist. This man that would stand in the temple of God, exalting himself above every religion, every god, and telling the world that he is God. Second Thessalonians chapter two. That's what we're talking about, the coming of the Antichrist. Um, and um, Matthew 24, verse 15 talks about this as well. This, this, I believe, is the ultimate abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place. Um, verse 37, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, okay, nor the desire of women, 
nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, some people believe that the Antichrist will be a homosexual because of this verse, because he doesn't like the desire of women. It very well could be, but I think, uh, um, well, the Antichrist would be everything vile, despicable person. He would do every abomination, probably. But uh, it says, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. So the Antichrist... Um, um, you know, you think of all the pagan religions, you know, you know a lot of them had uh, women figures, Astarte, Asherah, and all these, these, these women figures as part of their gods. They had men and women figures. But um, Mystery Babylon in the great book of Revelation is a picture of a false, the false pagan religious system. It seems as though all pagan religions, all, any religion whatsoever, true or false, is disallowed at that time, and there's only one worship. And that is worship of the Antichrist at this time. There will be a one world religion, and that's what it'll be. Okay? There won't be any more um, Islamists. There won't be Hindus at that time. Everybody will worship, besides Christians, everybody will be worshiping the Antichrist. Okay? Um, because he magnifies himself above all. But in his estate shall, shall he honor the God of forces. Okay, he's going to use a military might to enforce his edicts. And, excuse me, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Uh, verse 39, Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and he shall divide the land for gain. Okay? He shall divide the land. This, this kind of sounds like communism. You know, he's going to try to spread the wealth worldwide and so forth. Verse 40, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. Now check this out. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Now this gets a little bit complicated here because you're probably wondering, wait, I thought he was the king of the north, the Antichrist or the vile person. Why is there this other king of the north? Well, one speculation was, um, um, well, obviously we're dealing with the Antichrist at this point. But if you're reading a historical type of the vile person, uh, many people believe he, it would have been one of his brothers or another family member that was part of the rightful line because uh, the vile person took power through murdering his brother. So many people believe there was another king, a legitimate king of the north and the south, actually joined forces together against the vile person who took over the kingdom from all of them. Okay, So I don't know if these guys want power and control, if they're doing a good thing like for God or if they just it's another struggle for power. Hey, I want to be that great, you know, type of thing. Um, it's kind of a mysterious verse at this time. I'm not going to claim to know it all. Uh, verse 41, he shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and chief of the children of Ammon. Now these were Historically, these were enemies of Israel, okay? Enemies, enemies of the Israelites. And naturally, they would escape his, the wrath of his hand because um, if they're against God's people, then, hey, they're, they're with me type of a thing. Um, verse 42, And he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, 
and over he's going to you know one world monetary system and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many okay and he shall now check this out and he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him now there's a key here Be, uh, for those people who try to look at this as being entirely historical, no prophetic uh, type of the Antichrist. You know, there are people that believe that, and I have friends that actually believe that, and I'm not ridiculing them, but there's a fact here. Antiochus Epiphanes, the vile person, died in Tebo, or Tebe, Persia, not in Jerusalem. Okay? So this prophecy, though the vile person fulfilled some requirements of it, didn't fulfill everything. So what we're talking about here, the person that dies in, that gets defeated in Jerusalem, we know to be the Antichrist. We know that from the book of Revelation. We know that from the book of uh, uh, second, you know, we know that from Paul's writing to the uh, Thessalonians and so forth. So this verse is yet future. So the Antichrist will plant his palace in the Holy Land in Jerusalem Yet he will be defeated and none shall help him. All right, you guys made it through. Now, now to conclude, uh, you know, this chapter goes into amazing prophetic details, like I said, foretold hundreds of years beforehand. And, um, and the main, I guess, a main simple lesson, if you're totally confused, you should have no doubt in your mind that God is in control of the nations of the world and their destinies. And it's even interesting, if God knows all those details, how about his elect? How about people he chooses to do certain things? How much of your life does he actually have pre-planned? Not saying he controls everything you do, but how many major benchmarks in your life did all of a sudden you feel like you were just placed into? So God knows a lot of things. It's not just about nations and kingdoms. Uh, it, it's also about his own people. He'll, he's kind of got a lot of our lives planned out. I truly believe that. Um, I will close this up with uh, one quick quote. I know you guys have been very patient, but such a good quote, I can't, I can't skip over it. This will help sum it up. Okay, this is a quote from um, the Kaufman Bible Commentary. He says, The real feature of this great prophecy is not the exact historical events foretold, but the development of pagan world powers in their opposition to God and his holy worship. The mighty features of this prophecy are therefore these. Now check this out. Lust, murder, greed, avarice, cunning deceit, falsehood, treachery, violation of trust, breaking of treaties, mass extermination of whole populations, self-glorification, disregard of all sacred things, hatred of both God and man. And he says, Brother, there is your prophetic picture of the pagan world governments that rose up to destroy the worship of God, worship of God and to remove his holy name from the face of the earth, culminating in the outrages of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now all this happened unto God's first Israel. And in this prophecy, Daniel offers it as a prophecy of what shall at last happen to, now check this out, the second Israel 
in culmination of world events leading up to the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. It is, the most, it is most distressing to see unfolding in the present day history of world powers the very same ugly characteristics, characteristics which led to the disasters that befell the first Israel. Questions or comments? Well, the one right off the bat is in looking at you know modern day how that applies. Do you think that that is literal Israel? That the Antichrist will be in literal Israel at the literal temple, or because I know we talked about us being the United States being the New Jerusalem, or you know, what right. do you think about that? Yeah, that's that's uh, the million dollar question that I've been working on for quite some time. Um, <laughs> uh, it really seems to me that definitely, you know, us being new. I, I look at us as as Israel in the wilderness, like Revelation twelve says. But I look at uh, the appearance of the Antichrist as literally happening, uh, as the events in the Middle East being the forerunner to the literal appearance of the Antichrist in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if he's going to, because the temple there now is not like the Jewish temple or the, you know, it's the mosque. Um, it's possible that uh, a new temple could be rebuilt there. Um, a temple rebuilt mainly just for the Antichrist. Um, it's possible that it won't be, there won't be a temple built there until the Antichrist gets here and he'll build it. Because it did say he will plant his tabernacles in the holy mountain uh, at the end of chapter 11 there. So I do, I do believe that Jerusalem is, uh, is still the barometer of, prof of prophecy. Like if we want to know what's going to happen in the world. That's, isn't it strange that we think, okay, that the Jerusalem, the Holy Land, that after Jesus died, why do we even pay attention to what's going on over there? It's like... I mean, it's kind of seems like an insignificant place now. It's just a bunch of uh, nations quabbling and fighting each other nonstop over there all the time. But there's something about that land that is important prophetically. I mean, a whole chapter in detail of these dynasties fighting for dominion over the region, but they want it, They seem to want that land. But there's got to be a remnant of true Christians over there too, I would imagine. Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, I believe. I mean, there are. I think there's a remnant of true Judah there today, but as a nation, um, they. Well, one example is you can't evangelize in Jerusalem today, or in the modern day land of Israel. Um, so it's a very anti-Christian nation right now. Um, I just. I think I did read a news article recently about something that had happened there recently. Somebody got shut down. Some TV. God tube or something got shut down in uh, in Israel because they said that they were trying to proselytize or try to get Jews to convert to Christianity. So I mean, and then you tie that in with uh, the prophecies of the Antichrist. Uh, many people believe the Antichrist will actually be someone claiming to be a Jew. And uh, so I don't know. There are a lot of options open on the table. I mean, it's a. Uh, um, Unfortunately, prophecy, sometimes you don't always understand prophecy until after it happens. <laughs> well, that's why you're supposed to pay attention. <laughs> yeah, so when it does happen, you're like, okay, and then you can match it up. But um, 
Yeah. The other thing is, why, it seems to me, why can't the history continue, you know, where you said now, now it's Antichrist? How, I mean, it still is talking future, but couldn't that still be, well, you said because uh, he didn't die and where they said he died, but it seems like it should just continue on, at least the past one, right. the past story follows all the way up to the end and then. And that's what leaves a lot, that's what creates a lot of people who argue over, you know, um, you know, the, the, the technical word, I don't like to use technical words, eschatology, the study of the end times. Um, the, it is because it, it seems to be like, like what you're saying is why didn't God, so Daniel was given prophecies leading all the way up to his time and it was kind of, it could be historically fulfilled, but it yet looked forward to the future. But where is all the history from the time after Jesus died on the cross until the Antichrist. Is that kind of what you're... Yeah. Why, do, why aren't we given that in continuation? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm trying to figure that out right now. Other than maybe it's unnecessary. Maybe God knows that since these things play over, over history repeats itself, why keep giving the same history that's going to repeat itself? Empires rise and fall based off of that guy's you know lust, greed... Yeah. Murder, you know, it's like the same story replayed over and over again. I don't know, but that that is a a mystery, and it's definitely one that I've I don't think anybody's ever solved. I haven't found anybody who has. But we do know that um, uh, you know, in large part, it seems to be we're in this period of grace and and mercy for people to hear the gospel. And so it is kind of like a, you know, almost a pause in time. It's like God's now long, he's waiting for people to repent before he ends it with the appearance of the Antichrist and then having to judge people. Um, I don't know. I wish I knew the an all the answers. <laughs> Come on. A lot of people claim to know it. They really, I, this is it, you know. And, well, that would and, scare me more. Yeah. Somebody was so 100% sure of themselves. I'm pretty open-minded when it comes to prophecy. I'm not, you know, when it comes to God's law and it says, thou shall not do this, I'm not going to say, well, wait a minute, maybe, maybe you really can if you do, you know what I mean? But prophecy's different. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't get in big arguments with people because they see prophecy different. I, I think that's silly because, I mean, even Daniel himself, some of the visions that he saw, he didn't quite understand and was told... Uh, just go your way. They'll understand it later on <laughs> and as we get closer. King Overcomers is brought to you by the tithes and offerings of our listeners. If you would like to support our ministry, please go to ChristianOvercomers.com. God bless you, and thank you for your support. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible sword. His truth is marching on.